Episode of Behind the Lens. I'm film critic. Uh, huh, I can't even talk today. I'm just so excited that we're finally, finally, unfortunately, he can't be here live today. Um, I'm so excited you're going to get to hear my interview with Greg Kinnear, um, which is going to be coming up in a few minutes. But I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. Uh, you can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad in print and online 24-7, of course, on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, you're going to find me right here, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AdrenalineRadio.com. And, you know, if you're on Facebook, you can go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page and you can... Watch us streaming live. There's nothing exciting. It's just me sitting here in the radio studio, but with lots of beautiful, beautiful swag. Marvel, Disney, Forky. Um, I'm going to be on a Forky kick for a while. Just so, And everyone that knows me, I think, understands that already. I think Forky is one of the most creative and fun characters that we've seen uh, pop up in a movie in a while. Um, but... So in addition to hearing our exclusive interview with Greg Kinnear in a few minutes, uh, you're also going to hear, and I don't know if it's going to be live or pre-recorded. I've got a pre-record, but there's a slim chance that this other director may be calling in live in the second half of the show. Uh, Orson, the wonderful Orson Oblowitz, talking about his new film, Trespassers, a psychological thriller horror film. Uh, home Invasion. We're seeing a few of those this year, uh, and I happen to love them. Uh, and what you're going to love when you hear my interview with Greg Kinnear is Greg is talking, we're talking primarily about his new film, Phil, which comes out this Friday, uh, July the 5th. Greg makes his directorial debut with Phil, and it is a winner. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, but before we get to Greg, another fun bit of news that I get to share with all of you right now. As as you all know, not only am I a tomato meter approved critic on Rotten Tomatoes, but I am also a member of Los Angeles Online Film Critics Society. And what LAOFCS does is a mid-season awards list. Uh, for those films, especially those small indie gems that get lost in the shuffle. Come award season, start the the quote unquote award season starting in September. But we at LAOFCS, we love film all year. We don't wait for things to be award worthy till the end of the year. There's plenty of award worthy stuff now, and uh, so what we do is a mid season summer awards. And I am so thrilled, and thank you, El Presidente Scott Menzel. Uh, for letting me announce these wonderful, wonderful winners uh, right now on the show. And I'm going to cut right to the chase. Let's, you know, let's start with Best Picture. LAOFCS, 
Best Picture winner is Booksmart. Runner-up, Rocket Man. Both are winners. Both you can still find in theaters. If you haven't seen them, see them. Best Actor, another tight, tight category among the critics, among the critic members of the group. The winner, Taron Edgerton for Rocket Man. I still am predicting Taron's going to walk away with the Best Actor Oscar uh, come next year. Runner-up, Robert Downey Jr., Avengers Endgame. Come on, guys. We love him 3,000. Let's face it. I love him so much 3,000. I went and saw the movie again yesterday. Uh, Best Actress. Winner, Lupita Nyong'o. For us, runner-up, Beanie Feldstein with Booksmart. And that's a really tough call. It's how do you pick Beanie over Caitlin Deaver, her co-star in Booksmart, because the two of them each is one a flip side of the coin. Uh, but that's how the votes played out. Best Supporting Actor. Either one of these thrill me. The winner, Jamie Bell, playing Bernie Taupin in Rocket Man. And the runner-up, Ben Mendelsohn in Captain Marvel. One of the most beautiful performances and character arcs ever. Uh, Best Supporting Actress. Hands down, no contest here in my book. Winner, Billy Lord for Booksmart. Runner-up, Naomi Scott for Aladdin. Uh, Best Male Director. Winner, a fan favorite to boot, Jordan Peele for us. Runner-up, okay, I'll admit it, my personal pick, Dexter Fletcher for Rocket Man. Uh, Best Female Director. And I love that LAO FCS has now done this. I think we're the first to have male director, female director, so that everybody gets their due. Uh, Best Female Director, winner, Olivia Wilde for Booksmart. Runner-up, Laurie de Clermont-Tonnerre for The Mustang. Best Original Screenplay, Booksmart, Emily Halpern, Sarah Haskins, Susanna Fogel, and Katie Silberman. Runner-up, Us by Jordan Peele. Best Adapted Screenplay. Oh, come on. Is there any question, people? Toy Story 4, Andrew Stanton and Stephanie Folsom. And the runner-up, Avengers Endgame. Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. Best Indie Film. And I love that we have this category. It's no longer just Film Independent Spirit Awards that are celebrating the indie. LAOFCS is as well. Best Indie Film. Winner, Booksmart. Runner-up, The Souvenir. Best Streaming Movie or TV Series. We're equal. We cover everybody. Winner, When They See Us on Netflix, runner-up, Always Be My Maybe on Netflix. And the last award for the mid-season awards from LAO FCS, the most anticipated film for the second half of 2018 or 2019. Scott, you can't type. Um, <laughs> um, this is this is a tough call. This was a tough call for me voting, and I know it was for many of my colleagues. But when the votes were tallied, the winner for the most anticipated film for the second half of 2019, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino, and the runner-up, what else but Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. So I know that LAOFC is going to be posting this, as are all of the members. But thank you, Scott Menzel, for giving me this information to announce it at the top of the show. 
Uh, I'm very pleased with many, many of these of these awards and these uh, commendations that the group is has selected. And I love the idea that we are the one that does a mid-season so that nobody gets lost in the shuffle. That's so important in this industry and in the way it's, it's become structured with all of your streaming services, with Netflix, with Amazon, with Hulu. Um, it's, you know, it's a jungle out there. So anytime you get a chance to shine a light on excellent filmmaking, excellent films, uh, I welcome the opportunity to do so. And that's something that LAOFCS loves to do. So can't wait to see what happens the rest of the year and what happens at our big awards banquet uh, after the first of the year with the big winners for the year. But right now, let's turn our attention back to Behind the Lens and Greg Kinnear. This movie, Phil, that Greg has chosen as his first film, as his feature directorial debut, he also stars in the film, and he's in, I think, 98% of the scenes. He plays a depressed dentist named Phil. He's having a midlife crisis, but then he has a patient come in, uh, played by none other than Bradley Whitford, and he is the happiest man in the world. He's got everything going for him, but it, it just perturbs Phil. Why? What is he doing? What does he, what does he have that makes him so happy? But then a guy commits suicide. And then Phil is driven to find out what would make such a happy-go-lucky guy on top of the world commit suicide. And this becomes, it's a dark comedy, but there's plenty of laughs. There's great poignancy. Um, Kinnear then morphs from Phil and assumes this identity of Spiros, uh, a native Greek who is visiting, who came looking for his now deceased friend. And he infiltrates himself into the household, into the house of Alicia Fisk, uh, the, our grieving widow. So it's very interesting, but it's a great character study. It's a great rumination and contemplation on life. But there's laughter. There is a lot of love. And there's a lot of emotional growth. Kinnear Soares is a, both a director and an actor. And again, it comes out this Friday. See it, see it, see it. It's one of many films coming out from Greg this year. Because immediately following this up, the 31st of July, Red Sea Diving Resort, which he co-stars with uh, Chris Evans, that comes out. August 9th, Brian Banks. Based on a true story, you're going to hear Greg talk about Brian Banks in this interview. Then he's got Frankie, which just had its world premiere at Cannes, directed by Ira Sachs, whom he reteams with after Little Men. Uh, so take a listen as Greg Kinnear talks about being a director for the first time with Phil. How you doing, Debbie? Well, I'm thrilled to be talking to you again. And the last time we got to talk was for same kind of different as me. Oh my gosh! Yeah, you know, every few years we managed to connect. We did for that one, for Little Men, for Heaven Is for Real, and nice. But I've got to tell you, I watched Phil. I am so thrilled you finally, finally, finally put on your director's hat. 
You <laughs> have done an amazing job with this film. Oh, thank you. My gosh, it's so nice of you. Seriously, thank you. I, I'm really insecure about it. Oh, my God. Greg, you have nothing to be insecure about with this film. Number one, you bring on John Bailey as your cinematographer. <laughs> so when you've got John in your back pocket, you're, you're ahead of the game right there. You've got Rolf. That, that you you are right about that. Oh God! You've got Rolf Kent doing your score, which is so lovely, lovely. Yeah, yeah, I love his score. I, I, I Rolf has become a friend. Is um, you know he he loved the whole grease element, and I knew he would, and I knew he would be the perfect guy on the planet to have a sense of this movie. He's such an artist. And uh, he really connected with uh, with everything about it and really brought it up a, a notch. Well, let's just break this whole film down before we even get into your other upcoming projects, which you're just you're just gonna paper my world this whole year. I see this and I'm so happy about it. Um, but how did how did Steve Mazur's script come to you? I've long been a fan of his especially with the humor that he brought in films like Heartbreakers and even Liar, yeah. Liar. There's always a bit of redemption. There's humor. There's a crisis of conscience. There's somebody not quite walking the straight and narrow. And I, you do gravitate towards these characters, even in your performances, going all the way back to Dear God. Um, yeah. But so how did this find its way to you? Well, you know, Stephen, um, you know, the original uh, script of this had, uh, well, first of all, Phil was, was uh, you know, had a Scottish background versus a Greek background, and I lived in Greece for six years, so he was uh, nice enough to let us uh, change locales because I, I can't do a Scottish accent. And uh, so that was kind of the starting point. It also was, had like kind of Phil had an alter ego. So it was a little bit more heightened reality in, in his version. But uh, but we worked on it and, and basically we we modified it. And what Steve had so brilliantly uh, in that script was was a, a, a life affirming story um, uh, that was kind of framed in the backdrop of a suicide of all things. And, you know, that's a subject matter that it kind of indirectly, indirectly affected me with some people I know and, and certainly people I know who have been affected by mm -hmm. it. It's a horrible blight. And, and that, that idea that, that this guy, um, Phil sees, Phil is a guy, a dentist who thinks he has nothing to live for, who, who's, sees a guy who he thinks has everything to live for take his life and it becomes a mystery as to why and and that just really stayed with me and and then i look around the social media world and everybody's on these gadgets and it, everybody seems to be looking around thinking that everyone else's life is so wondrous around them and i i thought wow that that really is a strong idea that 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 idea that that somebody has all the answers somebody you think has all the answers they don't have any of the answers and that really that that's going to come from you you're going to have to solve the issues of your own life and and that really was what the the, the narrative was uh, on phil's story and i i felt like that was um that was fresh and i hadn't hadn't seen it before and the fact that he has to take on the life of a 
a Greek plumber in order to solve the answer added an element that uh, struck me as kind of fun. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a perfect role for you. But then what made this one the right one for you to finally put on that director's hat? Well, I, I kind of over the years kicked around a few other projects and um, I had done a few table readings on things and I, I just never felt like I fully connected, I guess, to the story. And 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 with this, um, I, I just felt like the idea behind it was was worth talking about and it 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 just landed with me and i and i liked the obviously it has humor in it but i felt like there is a real story here and there's some stakes involved um you know you're you're dealing you know it's a a tricky tightrope Mm -hmm. um uh in the sense that you you have a lot of different emotions happening and flying around in this story and you know there's a widow who's lost somebody that she deeply loved and 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 how do you navigate that and and still keep the audience engaged and how do you keep the audience from getting mad at phil for building this kind of house of cards that he does and are you allowed to do that and ultimately you know we don't really resolve there's no resolution Mm-mm. to the story there's no big at the end she doesn't find out the answer even herself as to why uh, why her husband took his life um so so there's there's some mystery to the story that i felt like was unusual unique and and i liked a, a great deal the humor that we were able to build it around mm-hmm. so how do you then as a director You've got to break this down and create and convey all of this visually and hit all of those emotional beats. So where do you start as a director? Did it start with bringing John John in? Um, Did you start breaking the script down? I'm really, I'm curious here. It was a very different story, um, you know, originally. Uh, You know, I mean, like a lot of the elements were were things that... uh, that we changed. Sandy Stern, uh, producer friend, brought mm-hmm. me the script originally, and and Stephen was was nice enough to kind of work with me, and we we just kind of I guess we just worked on it for honestly I think it was a good solid year, um, which was very helpful because I had no idea how heavy the <laughs> how heavy my actor's hat would be when I was actually directing. Uh, you know that that was. Um, that was tough, and I and I was grateful that I had had as much time as I did with with the story to try to, to try to get it there. But but I would say that a lot of you know the 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 heavy work was really just in getting the script right. Um, then yes, we needed someone to shoot it. Obviously, John had shot me in as good as it gets, and um, is now the president of the academy. And I only have presidents shoot my movies. Well, of course, uh, he was really, uh, you know, he was he was he's obviously a, an incredible deep, you know, photographer, and um, and we we tried to keep it relatively simple. There's mm-hmm. not a it's it's not a bunch of camera tricks. Nope. There's not a lot of uh, you know it, it's not it's a, it's a steady movie in the sense that we're really focused on the people that are in front of you and um when i was lucky finally to just get such a an extraordinary group of actors i mean emily mortimer is just somebody who i adore uh, from from the movie seats by the mm-hmm. way for, for many years i didn't really know her and 
and uh, but I really admired her and I think you know Jay Duplass and Luke Wilson is is, is a friend and and he joined us and, and obviously Robert Forrester who I think is the, yes. the guy who steals every <laughs> movie that he's in no matter how long and he was you know wonderful and um, I just felt like we really got a we got lucky with. Uh, with, with a lot of good people. Well, the casting is exemplary, and a, a real standout that I took note of, and I don't recall seeing her uh, really before, was April Cameron as Rahel, um, Phil's dental assistant. She is ah. one of the great finds. It's so funny you say that. Boy, do you have an eye, because uh, honestly, I was, you know, I, I she is so wonderful. She works, honestly, I forget what she does. I think she works at an insurance company in up in Canada or, and is available for acting. And she has a face and just an attitude and a, a, um, a quality that is so wonderful. I can't recommend, uh, I, I'm just, that's my calling card for April for the next director who happens to be in the Vancouver area because she's local and uh, she was so wonderful as Rahel. I fell in love with her and her vocal inflection, her delivery of dialogue is so spot on with her timing. And yep. she plays, she's a perfect foil she's for you. She's never done a movie before. Are you serious? Never. Wow. I've never done a film. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, she she is, you knocked it out of the park finding her, Greg. You really, yeah. you really, really did. Great. But you, know, you mentioned, you mentioned a little earlier about the heightened, the heightened sense of this story. And that's something that I picked up on with John's cinematography. Because for a good portion of the film, you've got the visuals, some of those opening shots, the night shots on, you know, along the river, the walkway. It's super saturated. It's polished. It's gorgeous. And for a lot of the film, I see a more heightened sense of color. But then as Phil slash Spiros becomes more involved in Alicia's life and starts putting pieces of the puzzle, what he thinks is putting the puzzle pieces together, I see that temper down to become more naturalistic. And I love the thought that you and John put into doing that because it really puts a lovely visual spin on this. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, you know, listen, I, I shooting movies and uh, camera uh, lens sizes and, and uh, uh, treating, you know, color is, is obviously not exactly been in my wheelhouse as an actor who shows up and the table is already set mm -hmm. um, for many years. Uh, so I really had to lean on him, and and obviously he is. Uh, uh, you know, it's funny. John sent me the rules of the game early on, uh, which which obviously does have a lot of movement in it. Uh, more at the time, than, you know, it's kind of amazing how much movement that movie has, and mm -hmm. considering it's from 1939. But you know, by today's standards it's not moving at all it's it's very steady and you're just following the action and kind of following these faces as they kind of go through this but um uh but as far as the 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 you know treatment of the color yeah there was a little um 
there's a little shift in there that, that we drop in as the, as the story progresses. And, and yeah, I think it was like the music, like Rolf Kent's music. It, it, it just adds a element to it. That's uh, that's really fun. But I thought that the movie looks beautiful. Oh. So, um, you know, the imagery is really, really pretty. Well, and something else that you do with the framing, um, Phil is so claustrophobic in the opening scenes. The camera is in tighter. It's not an extreme close-up, but it's like a mid-close that you've got. And then slowly, as he expands as Spiros and becomes more aware of things that were in Michael's life, the camera gets wider, the frame opens up especially in Phil's apartment. And yeah. it is it is such a beautiful metaphor for what Phil's going through. And I love that, that you, as a first-time director, bring this element into your visual design. Oh, thank you. Rolf Kent, besides being a beautiful score with the Greek undertones, there's also a lot of whimsy. There's some very whimsical no- beats to the score. You know what kind totally. of what kind of discussions did you have with Rolf about this score? What you were looking for? Um, because this is a kind of film where you really could have. Some directors would have gone the extreme opposite with a heavy, heavy yep. piano, heavy, dour score. And and you didn't. Yeah, it's hear. very. It's min- it's minimalist. Uh, it has a flavor um, as we as we move into this kind of Greek persona that Phil takes on. Rolf does just this magnificent job of seamlessly bringing the music, the little tones of of uh, of, of instrumentation that you would hear in Greek music, uh, starts to kind of drift into the movie a little bit, and and the score has. Uh, you know, some very, a couple of great staples in it to keep taking us back, um, certainly to Emily's story. And then it, it also has a, um, uh, it also has a very hopeful tone to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I told Rolf, I said, I, I want to keep hope alive in this thing, you know, and he felt the same way. And, and we, we, you know, he has a wonderful little studio here in Los Angeles and, you know, we go over and he's got every kind of tea imaginable, as you would expect. No coffee, by the way. Oh. Um, and you basically sit in this room and just watch him kind of bring these, you know, wonderful, uh, you know, wonder this wonderful score together. And then he went to where uh, I think we recorded the final orchestration, um, I want to say, in uh Belgrade, I think, is where he did it uh, uh, in Europe. And, mm-hmm. uh, he had a, a wonderful orchestra that came in and brought it all to life. So, you know, obviously, this is one of the great joys of, of directing is getting to see the whole culmination of, of you know, as an actor, you, you are a piece of, of the storytelling, and it's great, and I love it. It's wonderful, um, you know, that that idea of, of having a richer experience in the storytelling was something that always was in the back of my mind, and and to have gotten fortunate enough to, to get to tell this story and, and letting and getting to see all aspects, all mm-hmm. departments uh, doing what it is they do to kind of make these uh, not only our movie or any, you know, it makes you re-examine any movie when you see all of the effort done from all of the individuals that are, are so uh, 
so talented at, at bringing these things together. So great fun. And of course, not the least of which are two of your sound editors, Kelly Cole and Bill Mello. Your sound design, it, I, I was blown away during the shower sequence. The nuance yeah, and, and the subtlety of the sound mix there, because we have music, we have the crashing and the popping of, of the shower tiles, thanks to Spiros's excellent grouting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we can hear, we can hear Emily, we can hear her wailing and crying under the water. You have so many sonic layers there. That one yeah. scene really speaks to the excellence of your sound design and your mix. Yeah, the, the, you know, I again, that's uh, hats off to that gang. I mean, I, I uh, the first time, I, I sat on a few, you know, uh, uh, Sam Raimi is friend, and he's let me kind of hang out with him a couple of times, and I've had other friends who've let me in on the, the sound mix, and it's always a fascinating thing, and it sounds like everyone's speaking Chinese. I don't, I didn't quite understand it, but, you know, I, I did get a little tutorial in, in, in this before we started, and so I knew a, a little bit, but mostly for me it was just these guys would talk a lot about, do you want do you want to hear a little bit of this or a little bit of that? And I would be like, you can make that happen? <laughs> They'd be like, yeah. And I'd be like, this is incredible. This is incredible. And and so it was really like, you know, watching a flower bloom just to, to watch all these people at their, you know, the, do their craft. Well, you mentioned a flower bloom. Um, what led you to pick Lynn Anderson's I Never Promised You a Rose Garden? It's perfect. It's perfect. You know, it's funny that um, that song was uh, that was in um, Stephen's script, and I, and it was kind of a uh, there was a different opening for the movie, and uh, and ultimately there was a letter that Phil's reading, you know, and um, and it's kind of a suicide letter that it started with, and we basically ended up losing that and reprieving that song. Mm -hmm. And so he used to tell his brother, Jay Duplass, he mentions that song, that randomly happens to mention that song in the bar when he's talking to his brother about other people's lives and sunshine and roses and all of that. Mm -hmm. And and then I don't know at what point, but we just had this kind of inspired idea of saying, let's maybe drop that letter and let's just hear the music uh let's hear that song mm -hmm. and uh and the more i listen to it the more haunting and slightly uh you, you know we were just so lucky and i guess gil listen credit steve because he was the one who you know flagged it in the original script and it's just so perfect strangely in a in a very melancholy sad maybe a little hopeful way to kind of open the movie. It, it, it uh, turned out to be the the one we couldn't do without. Oh, I, I, I think it's perfect. But, you know, the big, the big question here, Greg, is how well did actor Greg take direction from director Greg? Yeah, you know, that, that's, a, that's a really... Um, um, I mean, listen, I... I I could really slap that Greg Kinnear guy around in this movie. And I would say uh, on set, uh, it, it didn't show up as much on set as it did just in 
the director, Greg, could really uh, have his way with the actor, Greg, in terms of, like, scheduling. It's mm -hmm. really hard to do these small films. You know, we, we have a, quite a big cast. Um, you know, Taylor Schilling, Brad, Bradley Whitford is also in the film. And, you know, these are real, these are stars. Yeah. It's not easy to get people to drop in for a few days on, on, uh, on these films. So we worked... Uh, so I always knew I had Greg Kinnear available whenever I needed him to do whatever I needed him to do. And that honestly was really valuable in the process of making it because we suddenly were able to, you know, uh, sure, there were days where I had to work 19 hours because we had to, we only had, you know, Luke and Tiffany, you know, Taylor available that day, but ah, he'll do it. He'll be fine. That guy will be fine. Um, and as far as, uh, uh, but as far as the performance, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I would defer to, uh, to my producer and, and my DP periodically and say, eh, they give a little nod and I'd feel all right about it, but there's really no way you're very, it's a very vulnerable place to be, to not have a, a, another person, uh, you know, on the outside guiding you, um, is is a very vulnerable place to be in and you feel completely exposed and you you're searching for validation and uh, it just is not going to come unfortunately mm. so you ultimately just have to do a gut check and say i think that's the way it's supposed to be um you know one advantage i had as i said is is i think just living with the script for a good year before we shot it at least I knew what I, as I was preparing for it, I, I knew what I thought I needed out of the performance. Um, but but whenever it was uh, way off the mark, there wasn't much I could do about it. Well, would director Greg ever hire this actor guy, Greg, again? He would hire him for a smaller role. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I would, uh, <laughs> I would want him to be uh, in quite this big a situation. This was... Uh, the only way to make this movie happen, you know, and there's so many great actors. I think of so many great actors who could have played Phil and probably been, and would have been better than me. But I, but I, uh, not that I think I was miscast. I wasn't miscast to play this guy. But there, there are some other wonderful actors who I would have enjoyed, um, you know, sipping my cappuccino and talking to them, going back to my director's chair in between scenes, uh, and and that. That would have been, you know, kind of cool. But I, I, I honestly, I believe that that if, if I were to direct again, I would just want a more manageable. I wouldn't mind being in anything, obviously, mm -hmm. but just, you know, a role that works a few days would be one thing. As it turns out here, I'm Phil. <laughs> well, talk about working. I mean, you've got this summer. I mean, you've got. Red Sea Diving Resort coming up. You've got Brian Banks. I'm dying. I'm seeing that next week. I am. I'm very excited about these upcoming roles. And then, of course, didn't you just have the Cannes premiere of Frankie? You're back with Ira Sachs. Yeah, we were just at. Uh, we're just at Cannes. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to go, but um, I love Ira and uh, great fun to work. You know, it was so great to work with him again. He was nice enough to invite me to Portugal to shoot that. It's a beautiful movie. But you've also got you've got the Red Sea Diving Resort. You're co-starring with Chris Evans. Uh, you're working with Gideon Ra. 
what is and it's coming out the end of July, so you're just going back to back to back with these films. What is that one about? Well, you know, it's funny because I I've actually when I did Phil, it really I wasn't working um, for a while. I, I just I went off into the into this directing thing, and it really was a um, kind of a getaway. And I and I and then I went and did some movies, and I guess they're kind of all stacked up for whatever reason. There's just a few. You know, there's like three coming out all this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Phil's July 5th, and then yeah, I think Red Sea Diving Resorts end of July. Yep. Um, I don't work that much in it. it. It was, but it was a great story, and Gideon's such a cool filmmaker. And um, it basically was a story um, back in the 70s. Um, uh, there were a number of, of uh, there's a large population of Ethiopian Jews, which I didn't wasn't aware of, hmm. and and they were uh, in the Sudan, uh, being held in these refugee camps and persecuted under terrible conditions. And the Mossad in Israel uh, sent over a group of of agents undercover to try and help get some of these people out of there, and they they basically took over this dilapidated hotel uh, called the Red Sea Diving Resort, and they opened it. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, German tourists started showing up, as they do, and and other tourists from (laughs) Europe. So they had to kind of pretend that they were literally running a diving resort, and at the same time, at night, they were... Um, they were kind of pulling some of these refugees out of these camps and getting them to safety in, in Israel and out of the country. And the American embassy was under first George Bush actually helped. They, they, they were helping a little bit, but they didn't quite trust what Israel was up to. And they kind of had their own interests, uh, you know, with, with oil and things. So, you know, so it's a little cat and mouse with the governments. Ultimately, the U.S. sent a couple of big uh, C-130s in there to help get out uh, thousands of people out of there. And so I play the American Embassy liaison, and uh, it was it was cool. We shot it in Namibia and South Africa. Sir Ben Kingsley, who was Ben Kingsley the first time I worked with him, is uh, is in the movie as well, and some other great actors and. Uh, um, and then that Brian Banks that you mentioned comes out August 9th, and, and that's a that's a hell of a story. There a lot of people remember that story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's a it, for me. It was a find. I didn't realize. I came home after meeting with Tom Shadyac, and I met Tom for like what was going to be a half hour meeting. It turned into like five hours of him kind of walking me through this incredible story and his passion for it. You know, Tom obviously comes from that big studio comedy thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and had so much success. And yet um, here he comes with this drama completely out of the box of of what you would expect and and was just so great for this job. And so such the right person for it. I was was really really proud of him. He he did a great job. But uh, but it's a it's a hell of a story about, you know, what would this guys, you know, it, it's really the justice system, I think, is the takeaway mm-hmm. on it, Banks, how broken our justice system is, but but the story that you follow of Brian and, and what happened to him and how he comes out the other side of it is, is truly incredible. And you play attorney Justin Brooks in this one. I do. Mm-hmm. I do. And Justin runs the uh, 
California Innocence Project, and they they've exonerated over 34 uh, people. That, you know, not for technicalities. I mean, these are people who were just wrongly in prison mm-hmm. at 20, 30 years, and he's never taken a dime. Uh, he's a remarkable guy, and he just he works with these kind of young and you know aspiring you know lawyers in, in, in his law school, and. The truth is that Brian's story was a little off the grid for them because they normally take, you know, they, they are exonerating people who are wrongly accused and they get thousands of letters. And here's this kid who's actually was falsely imprisoned. He was wrongly imprisoned, but now he's out. He's on parole and he wants to play football, but he can't because he's got the ankle bracelet and he's got the dreams of playing in the NFL, but he can't do any of that because he's a registered sex offender and all the, that goes with that um he just wanted to get the conviction overturned which is a really hard thing to do and justin's kind of the adult in the room and and basically wasn't so into the idea but then he finally met brian and you know brian is an advocate for himself and and just made a hell of a case about how he really was in prison and how he still was in prison and he needed you know, to get the thing overturned in order to go have the life that, that he was kind of entitled to. And uh, Justin ends up helping him, uh, helping him take it on and, and take on the you know city of Los Angeles. And, and uh, ultimately it was overturned. And, and Brian went and had some, uh, you know, played with uh, the Atlanta Falcons, uh, you know, and, which was, uh, which was really incredible. Well, I can't wait to see that. I can't wait to see the other films. But right now, I'm going to tell everybody, they need to see Come July 5th. They have to see Phil. It is an amazing performance, Greg. A fabulous directorial debut. The work belies the fact this was your first directing experience. And I seriously hope you, you direct some more. I really want to see more. Thank you. You have an incredible storytelling eye. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Oh, Greg, thank you so much. And I hope I get to talk to you again about one of your other projects in the future. Me too. That was really great. Thank you so much. And that was our exclusive with Greg Kinnear talking about his directorial debut with Phil in Theaters Unlimited this Friday, July 5th. Also stars Emily Mortimer, Jay Duplass, Bradley Whitford, Robert Forster, Luke Wilson, and introduces us to April Cameron, who, uh, guys, I'm telling you, she is she is the breakout in this film. As Greg himself said, you know, this is going to be her appear her uh, performance here. That's his calling card for her and hers. Um, so check out Phil. We'll be talking about Brian Banks, Red Sea Diving Resort, and more from Greg in the future, in the coming months. Um, I mean, we're already in July, so we've got a second Greg Kinnear film the end of the month and then the beginning of August. So we will hear more from Greg Kinnear over the next six, six, eight weeks. But right now, and let's see. Okay, we're going to go with the pre-record. We're going to go with the pre-record for Orson Oblowitz. Talking about his new film, Trespassers. As I, uh, watching this film, the first thing that popped into my mind is Crazy Town on Crack. 
It is. It blows your mind. We have two dysfunctional couples who they rent. They decide to meet up. The two girls uh, were actually Sarah and Estelle, actually besties who kind of drifted apart. Now they're trying to reconnect. And they have uh, Sarah has her husband, Joseph, with her. And Estelle brings, I guess, the flavor of the week, Victor, with her. Uh, performances are solid. Um, but they go to this home in the desert and a neighbor shows up, a neighbor who is played by Feruza Balk in an unforgettable performance. It is, you're going to hear Orson talk about Feruza's contribution and creation and manicuring of this character, of this neighbor who shows up at the door. And of course, everything really starts once Somebody bothers to open the door in the middle of the night, which one of the cardinal rules in in horror films and thrillers, you don't open the door, but it gets opened. And when it gets opened, that's when Crazy Town kicks in. Um, it turns into a bloody, tension-filled night. The film is stylish. It is atmospheric. And it is an absolute, honest-to-God thriller. And as you're going to hear us talk about Orson's first discipline... And his real love is cinematography. And that really comes into play here as he's working with his cinematographer, Noah Rosenthal. And I've been a fan of Noah's since he worked with Matthew Lillard in his directorial debut, Fat Kid Rules the World. Um, so take a listen to our exclusive with Orson Oblowitz talking about trespassers. Oh, or wait, what do we have here? Let's hold on a second. We have a phone. Let's see. What do we have, Pam? Oh, no. Somebody's calling in incorrectly on our phone line. Okay. So let's move ahead. Pam is going to start this. I'm so excited to talk to you after watching Trespassers. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> as, as I emailed Emily earlier today, I said, this is like crazy town on crack. Yes. Uh, you're speaking my language. I love this film. Oh, that means so much to me. Thank you. And I've got to tell you, Orson, your strong suit, as I've known, is cinematography. And <laughs> you working with Noah, and I'm a big fan of Noah's work. He worked with Matthew Lillard on his directorial debut, Fat Kid Rules the World. Yeah. And Noah has a great visual sensibility about him. And between the two of you, what you have come up with visually, high polish, the lighting is off the charts, the way you use the red and green and the flashing on and off and the inky blackness, you've got all this under, undertone metaphor going on. It is dynamic. That's so cool. Noah's the best. Noah, like... I was so happy to be introduced to him for this film, and, like, we've become very close friends. I mean, yeah. you know, I've seen enough, you know, enough of a variety of Noah's work that he has capabilities that where he hasn't stretched himself before. Here, he gets to, to stretch himself as a cinematographer. And yeah, no, he, he totally, I mean, that was, like, a big, I think, a big, fun part of this. You know, you know, how did this film 
even come your way, Orson? Um, I had just finished my first film, The Queen of Hollywood Boulevard, mm-hmm. and Julio and I had worked together years before when we were just both starting out. And I knew he had gone to distribution, so I gave him a ring. I said, hey, man, you think you could help me try to get my film out there? Him and his brother Diego watched it. And I got a phone call a couple weeks later, which was like, dude, we have a script. We think we can get this made. We just think this is you. We want you to bring your voice to this. And that's how it all began, you know? And then we were off to the races. And in a couple months, we were shooting this crazy movie. They introduced me to Noah because Noah had shot Diego's film, Curvature. Mm-hmm. So that's how I met Noah. And they introduced me to Corey. And I just really vibed with the script. I love home invasion thrillers, but I also love, you know, the drama side of this. That was a big, a really big bulk that I can mix two worlds that I love more than drama. Mm-hmm. And see if we could pull it off. Well, that's like, you know, I love, you know, film and cinema. And, like, I think there's a line that we, and I wanted to make sure that there was, there was, you know, subtext that we were reading into throughout the film, you know. This film isn't just about people dying and people being scared. And I think if you can add those layers and if they do come across and you do pay attention to them, there's a lot to take away. I mean, I think horror is one of the great genres because we can tell, we can talk of so much about society and about humanity Mm -hmm. and still make it really entertaining. Well, and I think what you've done here is a lot of this is, it's very much a psychological thriller. First and foremost, I think, because of the dynamics of your characters. You've got Sarah and Joseph, and as we fu- we know something traumatic has happened to the relationship, so things are not what they should be, nor are they what they're trying to make them appear on the surface. And slowly, you know, we find out what that was. Um, you know, Estelle and Victor, here again, things are not what they what they seem to be. And you start wondering right away when you get some friction with Sarah and Joseph, well, why in hell are you inviting another couple to be around? Uh, (laughs) And that couple is just as dysfunctional as Sarah and Joseph, but possibly even more so because Victor is a loose cannon strung out on party favors. She is. She is. And I think that, you know, there there was this kind of, uh, you could say, theme of like toxic masculinity mm-hmm. the film and how that affects these two I think really interesting strong women in the movie you mm-hmm. know, I, I love those two characters and I think you see them you know they're trying more than anything what you realize in the film is the film's more much more about them reconnecting their bond than the bond with these men yeah and the what and you mentioned something interesting with the toxic masculinity because on the one side we have Victor who is, you know, he's trying to be the great ape in the jungle and beat on his chest about, you know, how much of a man he is. And on the other side, we have Joseph, who is essentially, he's very, he's very timid, he's confused, but that confusion is boiling into anger because he, he is, you know, it's two sides of the coin for, for what a man can be. And it's really interesting the way you, you play that out and you show that. I thank you, because I think that is a part of what we're talking about here. And you even see it later with, 
I don't want to go into because of the twist, but yes, other men show up that also show a whole other side. Yep. Of that, of that type of, of power and how they abuse power. Mm-hmm. And I think you know we are we wanted to play with that and we wanted to play with the different ways that people act out and that there is a level to Joseph where he is a little bit constantly suppressing himself. Yeah. You know, and almost falsifying his feelings. Mm-hmm. Always trying to be the good guy. I'm like, he's not a good guy. They could, we, you know, I mean, I don't want to get too much. No, but as, as we find out, you know. He's not a good guy. <laughs> yeah. That's the beauty here, Orson. There is not a single character here that is 100% good. Every no. one of them is flawed, some more so than others, but who of anybody has redemptive qualities and i think that's where the horror aspect of the film really comes into play where you really ratchet it up because it's kind of like eye for an eye people are getting what they morally deserve that right there was a, my a, a theme that i entered the film with when i started thinking was this idea that these are not good people with bad things happening to them. These are bad people getting maybe the justice that they needed to get. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to go with that. And it's very interesting because I think we've been conditioned as a film audiences to only thinking good or bad. Yep. And that bores me. I love morally ambiguous characters. Oh. I love characters that are confused. Well, because you also never know which way it's going to go. And there's always that chance when they're morally ambiguous that there could be redemption or there could be the final descent into hell. Absolutely. This film, for me, is a descent into hell. Uh, Well, yeah. (laughs) But it's a beautiful descent into hell, Orson. As I said, the cinematography with the play with the lights and, you know, when the lights go off and you've got that inky blue-black tone that I just love in darkness and you've got darkness outside... But then when you've got the lights flashing on and off and thing and emergency lights blinking and things like it's fabulous. It just looks so, so you love it. <laughs> I I absolutely love it. And it and it really fuels that manicness, that frenzy that Victor has really infected everyone with. Because he's a very toxic infection in this whole mix here. Absolutely he is, but what you at times, he's right. Yeah. He's a toxic infection, but at times, he's maybe the best voice of reason. Here he got horror film, what's the first thing that you don't do? You don't open a door. Exactly, you don't open the door, and he says, don't open the door. I'm not don't. I've watched a million horror films. Uh, of course I have the bad, one of the bad guys go, don't open the door. I'm telling that to the audience. But you know what? We make, we all make decisions for our own reasons. Mm-hmm. And Sarah, I think, is a very complex character. Yeah. And I think at the end of that film, you could think of a lot of reasons why she did that. Well, yeah, you can. But it's also, but by the same token, it's like from the time that you're little, from the time you're small, parents are telling you, don't open the door. Don't open the door. Don't open the door. In this particular instance, it's like waving the red flag in front of the bull and saying, hey, don't charge, knowing full well that's what the bull's going to do. But you bring in one of my favorite character actresses of the past 15 years, 
Faruza Balk. I am such a huge admirer of her work from Bad Lieutenant to The Craft to The Water Boy. She is phenomenal. You cannot take your eyes off her. You want to hear every word. You want to see every nuance. And you and Noah very smartly give us some great close-ups on her with the glasses. And she's looking down and she's peering over the top of the glasses. And she's making scrunchy things with her face. She is beyond intriguing. Beyond intriguing, Orson. She's amazing. I was so... I mean, that to me was like... The, the couple days we had with Urza was just awesome. And she she just brought it. She's just, you know, she really understood the character. She understood it more than I did. Mm-hmm. She brought a character that could have been such a cardboard cutout, such a plot point, and made it so complex and so full of life and ambiguity. And, you know, the thing about Urza is everyone knows her for the craft. And everyone knows her, you know, she was an American History X. But, you know, she was getting independent spirit awards in the 90s. Yeah, like, she's a real, real actress. And, like, you know, I just, it was, it, I felt very honored to have her in this role and for her to really bring this, uh, just life, you know, just humanity to some to, to a character. Like yeah. That. No, and then so, you throw in the costuming and the hair for that character. Right, yeah. It just so brilliantly done because you're, you're looking at it and you see how she's dressed and the only car you see is a vintage car, a sedan out on the road um, and then you look at the house that we're in which obviously this is a multi-million dollar house it is beautiful it is tricked out to the nines but you look at her who's supposed to be a neighbor would she really be living in that neighborhood as a neighbor to a multi-million dollar house? Well, that's the question, you know. Yeah. She, you know, she was playing, you know, was she, is she just playing a character playing a character? Yeah. That, that's, that's what she brings. And she really manicured that look for herself with, with Stephanie and, and our, our costume designer and Brittany, our, our makeup. Uh, supervisor, like she makeup artist, she really they together. It was really Faruza's brainchild to kind of create this unrecognizable everyday woman and not show up looking like she was Nancy from the Craft, you yeah. know, not to be the obvious bad bad woman, but to totally be just the friendliest neighbor you could imagine. I think her, I think her idea was she was like. She said, like, maybe she was, like, one of the players, like, she was, like, a local, uh, like, um, art class teacher in the elementary school. Mm -hmm. Which you could see in that particular area. Because we get enough of a look of the exteriors that, yeah, you could see that. You know, an artsy, like a Taos kind of area. Yeah, very, very much so. Absolutely. But, you know, a lot, a lot of this, once you have all these incredible visuals and you have performances like what Feruza gives you, what Jonathan gives you as Victor, once you have this, then you, I've got you, you've got to look at Brett Solemn's editing. Um, wow. You've got, you've got some great pacing here that keeps us on the edge the way he cuts back and forth and the way that you're cutting back and forth 
and using the flickering lighting as also as a rhythmic beat within that editing, it just heightens everything even further, Orson. Thank you. Brett is awesome. Brett is a, you know, this is the first project we did together. Um, once I met him, we just, I mean, we had read the script and he just showed up with a whole bunch of great references of films and we just started talking and we vibed. And that, that guy is a, I mean, he edits so much, so many movies. He's just a beast. He's a master. Like, yeah. God is so good at just pacing and he taught me a lot. There's so many tricks he does to just constantly keep him moving. You know, in the edit, he call, he kept calling it the chainsaw. Like, you just keep it moving and he's just a real, uh, he's a secret weapon in all of this. And mm-hmm. I, I can't, I can't like, you know, talk highly enough about Brett and what he brought to the edit, you know, and really fast. Like, we edited this whole fast. We, we, we just, you know, it was just like intense and fun and we were in the room for, you know, a lot of hours just, just really getting in there and he, he just really brought it. And that's part of our exclusive interview with Orson Oblowitz talking Trespassers, which is in theaters on the 12th. Um, the full, our full interview with Orson will be up on BehindTheLensOnline.net as well. Our interview with Greg Kinnear. But that is all the time we have for today. Next week, very interesting. Uh, Frederick Cipolletti uh, is going to be with us live talking about his film, Desolate. And uh, I think possibly um, you're going to hear from Lynn Shelton next week. I'm not sure, but I think possibly. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with all of the master artisans and craftsmen, on-screen talent, behind-the-lens talent, uh, directors, writers, composers, cinematographers, editors, uh, sound designers, costumers, production designers, and find out the ins and outs of making what you see on your big and small screens today. Um, very, very excited about today's show. Um, first up, you're going to hear my exclusive pre-recorded interview with one of my favorite directors, Lynn Shelton. Um, for a number of years, 
It was every year Lynn and I were doing multiple interviews because she was churning out films, Hump Day, Your Sister, Sister, Laggies, Touchy Feely. Then she moved into television and has spent the past few years doing uh, directing Fresh Off the Boat, Glow, Santa Cl- episodes of uh, Santa Clarita, Clarita Diet, Shameless, and others. But she is back with a new film, just as funny as her er- as her earlier films, particularly a uh, film like Hump Day, which starred uh, Mark and Jay Duplass. Um, sort of, sort of trust is it. Okay, I laughed out loud through most of the film. And what's very, very interesting about the way Lynn writes and directs is that she writes a script treatment. She doesn't write a full script. This one was a little more fleshed out than some of her prior works have been. But it revolves around having your actors that, as she calls, are, are cultivated, are curated, so that they mesh because it becomes a case of situational improv with the performance and bringing the film to life. And in this case, she's got some incredible talent, comedic talent, in the form of Michaela Watkins, Jillian uh, Jillian Bell, Mark Marone, John Bass, uh, Don Bakedale, or Backdale. I never get his name right. Um, But absolutely funny from beginning to end. There is some great poignancy in there as well. And it's basically a story about Cynthia and Mary. They go to collect Cynthia's inheritance from her grandpappy in the Deep South. They thought that they were getting the house. What they ended up with was a sword. And, but then a story comes attached to the sword, as it may be proof that the South won the Civil War. And with that premise in mind, the film just takes off. So you're going to hear uh, my exclusive with Lynn in just a minute. And it's always so much. It was very hard trimming this 45 minutes down uh, to about a 28-minute interview for you, uh, trying to keep in because Lynn has such an incredible sense of humor. And she smiles and laughs the whole time she talks about her films. And it's such a joy. But at the midpoint of the show... We have writer-director Frederick Cipolletti joining us to talk about his new film that's opening this week, also Desolate. I am beyond intrigued with this film, and I can't wait to talk to Frederick about it. Um, Minimal dialogue. It's a thriller. Uh, It's set. I mean, it's beautifully lensed, absolutely beautifully lensed by Isaac Bauman. And it takes place in the middle of or at the end of a long, long, long drought. And what has happened to families of farmers as they get exploited and they don't have crops and they don't have cash. And what do you do when desperation sets in? And it leads to just major, major fallout. Uh, A lot of gunplay. Uh, so I can't wait to talk to Frederick, and we'll get more into Desolate when he comes on, and he'll be joining us live. But uh, in the meantime, why don't we take a listen uh, to my interview with Lynn Shelton. And we actually, Lynn and I don't do interviews with even a hello. It's like we just start right in. And we started talking about 